You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Swarat Choudhury, an associate professor at the University of Texas. His lab studies problems at the interface of programming languages, logic and formal methods, and machine learning. Swarat's PhD thesis is titled Logics and Algorithms for Software Model Checking, which he completed in 2007 at the University of Pennsylvania. We start by discussing reasoning about programs and how it compares with reasoning in general, and then move to his thesis work on theoretical methods for proving the correctness of software. We talk about how his research evolved to the present day, including how machine learning began to play a larger and larger role, and how insights from formal methods have persisted throughout his career. We cover various topics related to machine learning for code and program synthesis, including the role of large language models, how ideas from formal methods can help to build safer and more interpretable systems, and the emerging area of neurosymbolic programming, in which functions are represented as programs that can use neural modules in addition to symbolic primitives and are induced using a combination of symbolic search and gradient-based optimization. He also provides some great advice on picking research problems and maintaining a long-term focus. So be sure to stay around for the end of the episode. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Swarat Choudhury with Logics and Algorithms for Software Model Checking on the Thesis Review. Before we start talking through uh, your thesis and also just how your research has evolved since then, um, why don't we just start kind of at the beginning before your PhD? What was kind of your background and um, how did you get interested in the idea of doing research and doing a PhD? Right. Um, For me, uh, there were a lot of uh, researchers around me growing up because both of my parents uh, were professors. And um, uh, so that was always a career path that was visible. Now, of course, uh, for a lot of other folks, that's uh, not the case. And I'm always really impressed by them. Uh, but for me, you know, uh, that was, if not the default, that was <laughs> not too far away from the default. Uh, mm-hmm. So then I uh, got into this undergrad program at uh, the Indian Institute of Technology, uh, Kharagpur. And uh, I went on a research internship uh, just to uh, check it out, see what research is about. Uh, there's actually a funny story there. Uh, which is that uh, I had a choice between two internships. One of them was in this area called neural networks, which was kind of obscure. 
And then there was this other one called uh, formal verification, which is what several faculty members in our department did. And uh, I was actually leaning towards the, the neural networks internship, but uh, then this uh, elder in my college said that, uh, no, don't do AI. AI is just a dead area. It's, you're never going to get a job. So I decided, well, maybe I should uh, go and do this research internship uh, at the Chennai Mathematical Institute on Formal Methods. And uh, then for a long time after that, I actually didn't think about neural networks at all. Uh, I, I really loved my internship. Um, I went on another internship the year after, uh, did an undergrad thesis on the topic of formal methods uh, at my institution, and then uh, applied for PhD programs around the U.S. and then, you know, ended up at Penn. That's the that's how I started on my PhD. So then, when you started your PhD, uh, you had done this thesis in this formal methods, formal verification area. Did you have a pretty good idea of the area that you wanted to focus on already then? Or, um, yeah, how did that kind of work out? I did, yes. Um, and in retrospect, the sort of certainty I had about, uh, you know, what I wanted to do in grad school and beyond, that was a little bit misplaced. Uh, if anything, after my PhD, I have... Uh, I have moved around uh, in, within computer science a lot, and and um, uh, what I do these days is quite different from what I used to do uh, back in the day. But at that point, uh, when I was uh, just graduating college, I felt like, oh, I really like this area. I, you know, I have I've learned a lot about it over the last uh, couple of years, and um, I got a chance to do a PhD with uh, one of the leading figures in that field. So this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, right? So mm -hmm. uh, that's how it seemed at that time. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, we, were, we were talking before this conversation that I grew up in Austin and you're at UT now. And then I did my undergrad at Penn. And um, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I actually took the, uh, not the algorithms course, but the one on like automata and, and things like this right. with your uh, previous advisor. So <laughs> yeah, small world. <laughs> So then the, the like the title of your PhD thesis uh, was Logic and Algorithms for Software Model Checking. The thesis starts off uh, talking about reasoning about programs. And this idea of reasoning is thrown around a lot in the in the AI world nowadays. And it seems to like mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask, like in general, like when you're working on things. And this like word reasoning comes up. Do you have like a working definition that you keep in mind? Well, interestingly, um, my own perception of what the word reasoning means has evolved over time as I have uh, sort of uh, migrated from one area to uh, to another. Uh, but um, just... Um, to go back to what it meant when uh, I was writing my thesis uh, to me. So um, there is a long tradition of uh, research on the use of logics in specifying complex systems um, described as programs, and then reasoning about uh, or, or proving properties uh, of, of those systems, uh, proving that those uh, specifications actually are satisfied. So this typically takes the form of uh, you have this, you know, potentially complex program, but um, 
it has uh, a formal semantics. And so you can use this formal semantics to basically show that uh, there are different kinds of properties that will hold at different points of the program. And then you can uh, infer more complex properties from simpler properties and so on. So in the formal methods programming languages world, this is what uh, reasoning typically means. And this is the the primary meaning of, uh, uh, was the primary meaning of reasoning to me at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, uh, there was this parallel universe where many of the ideas uh, that were being used in formal methods were also being used in AI. But honestly, I wasn't very uh, aware of that at that time. But now I am, right? And and I think that there is this fascinating opportunity to take these sorts of uh, reasoning techniques from um, from formal methods, uh, you, you know, proving properties of, of systems and applying them to intelligent agents. And, you know... Um, uh, in the process, creating new ways of uh, understanding how the world works and then figuring out how to make decisions uh, given that uh, understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So then like in the program world, how does the, how does reasoning about a program differ from, say, just like common sense reasoning? Is it that we kind of know everything in this controlled environment and we know that everything will kind of logically follow according to strict rules and then in the real world the not the underlying like premises are more fuzzy that's right yeah that's a, that's a great point so um yeah so in the world of programs uh, the program is written in a programming language which has a formal semantics uh, at least in the minds of pl researchers um, in reality there are some you know it's it's a little bit more complex but um uh, I think it's it's not unnatural to think of a you know very precise, well-defined semantics for um, for uh, programming languages. And then um, what you have essentially is a is an entirely mathematical task. Uh, you know, a program is a mathematical object at that point. It's a dynamical system, um, and what you are trying to do is to to uh, prove a mathematical theorem that says that, uh, let's say, you know, at uh, all points of the program execution, a variable is going to be uh, greater than zero. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is different from what arises in the real world, uh, because uh, there um, you have, uh, or I should say, you know, uh, real world situations that arise in AI. so there, a lot of the times, there is uncertainty about uh, about the world, and you need to model that uncertainty in in some form. Um, in programming languages, typically, when we do not know something, we make an adversarial assumption over it. So we just assume that you know it's going to be any value from within a certain set. But in in um, AI settings, it makes sense to take a more uh, sort of quantitative uh, Point of view, and and that's why we have probabilistic models and so on. So there is, um, so there is that, and then there is also the fact that the rules of the of the world are not uh, always well defined. Uh, mm-hmm. You may not even have uh, a full vocabulary for describing the world. Uh, so so as a result, you have to consider uncertainty and and fuzziness and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So then 
yeah, this idea of formally specifying and then proving things about it seems to start to relate to uh, what you were looking into in, in your thesis. So you worked on this problem of model checking. So maybe could you just introduce this problem for, for those who aren't familiar and kind of like why at the time did it seem like a, an interesting area to work on? Yeah, model checking is basically a family of um, of uh, formal verification and uh, uh, bug finding techniques. So um, here, what you're given is a is a system. Uh, it's let's think of it as a program, and uh, you are using a variety of methods based on search to either uh, find that uh, find counterexamples to a property to show that there is an error. Or uh, in, in some cases, you could also um, imagine proving correctness uh, using, using model checking. So basically, you explore the space of uh, possible states of the, of the system, and you demonstrate that all of these uh, states are, are, uh, are, are safe. And, and more generally, all possible executions are going to satisfy whatever the requirement is. So um, if I had to summarize in a sentence, model checking is basically search-based methods for, for um, bug finding and, and, and verification of, of systems. Now, um, my thesis specifically looked at systems that were uh, modeled as recursive programs. So here you have potentially an infinite uh, uh, space of states uh, because the recursion can uh, lead to uh, basically configurations where you have to keep track of a of a potentially unbounded stack uh, as well and um, and so just applying basic state space search uh, there are problems uh, it's not a uh, you know it's n not even decidable so if you are um, if you just throw a search at uh, at an infinite state system, there is no reason why it should uh, necessarily um, terminate. But then uh, there were all of these uh, algorithms that uh, were developed for different classes of, uh, of uh, this kind of systems um, that uh, leaned on results in automata theory and, and logic and uh, was able to show that uh, under circum certain circumstances, you could get uh, decidable uh, problems and 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 procedures for for solving these problems. So my uh, uh, thesis was on uh, such a set of algorithms. We were looking at using these uh, uh, this new class of uh, automata that we had developed. And these were called automata or nested trees. And so these, uh, you know, just like with just as regular finite automata have uh, all sorts of algorithms defined on them. You could. Uh, it turned out that it was possible to have similar algorithms for, uh, or some some algorithms of that sort for this category of automata as well, and that in turn led to procedures for model checking. Yeah, so there's a there's a couple things there. So one is like in terms of just the overall uh, approach to model checking. I guess here it was kind of saying like we can do we can do everything kind of on pen and paper in some sense. We can like formally specify everything and then prove that certain properties will be true. How do you view this from like a wider perspective? Like how should we 
check software, does this kind of like break down for more complex situations or how is your kind of view on how we should verify or prove things about software uh, evolved over time? Right. So my own perspective has uh, shifted quite a bit uh, uh, since I graduated. And these days, I I increasingly feel that even for the problem of software verification, uh, just uh, one has to if one has to if one wants to make a real world impact, one has to uh, depart a little bit from the the old school perspective of uh, having you know fully formalized specifications uh, of the world and of of a of a program, um, mm-hmm. because. Uh, Real world software systems are are really really complex, and um, the uncertainty that we were talking about earlier that is also increasingly there in in uh, many forms for for software systems, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of the times we don't fully understand why a certain component works. In fact, increasingly as we enter an era where machine learning is going to be introduced in all layers of the software stack. Uh, we will have actually components that are that don't even have clear specifications, right? The specification just comes out of the data. So mm-hmm. then there's the question of how do you, uh, you know, adapt classical formal methods techniques for uh, these kinds of systems? And I think that's a very interesting and open question. Um, I just I just think that in order to answer those questions effectively, um, we would need to have uh, take create treat uncertainty as a first class citizen and uh, come up with new methods uh, for uh, reasoning about this uncertainty um, mm-hmm. in conjunction with also using more classical logical techniques for reasoning about the parts of a system that uh, we do understand exactly. Yeah, I see. So in some sense, like the the kind of uh, insights or the, the framework that you get from the formal methods does still persist in some sense. It's just taking a different form where you're kind of not proving everything, but you're trying to like integrate those types of ideas into a more uncertain scenario. Is that kind of the overall uh, that's picture? Right. That's right. I mean, one way to think about it is that, uh, you know, probability theory is, uh, is a generalization of logic. Uh, uh, and, um, and so uh, going from logical reasoning to probabilistic reasoning you know, you should be able to lift a lot of the insights that you were that that we used uh, back in the day, or mm-hmm. that large parts of the community are still using now, um, and then um, expanding them with these uh, ideas from uh, from uh, statistics and and um, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh-huh. So, as we've been discussing, like your thesis work uh, had a lot of theory in it, and um, I find that like some of the most kind of just like beautiful ideas are deep in in some like random math textbook or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> are there kind of things that stay with you like ideas even if it's something simple or maybe it was something that you like remember deep into the into the research some like theoretical idea that is like memorable in some sense. Right, right. Yeah, uh, I mean I am I must say at heart still uh, uh, at some level a theory person mm-hmm. uh, because uh, 
what I get excited by is uh, <clears throat> not just uh, a cool application, but uh, but where there is some sort of an algorithmic insight, uh, right, that is reusable um, across uh, many different problems. And uh, ideally, that algorithmic insight should come with uh, some sort of a, a proof. Otherwise, to me, it, it seems like... Uh, at some level, again, and it's it's, um, it's um, um, a heuristic that could fail uh, when faced with the next problem. Mm-hmm. But that said, I also recognize that uh, there are many important classes of computations for which giving these kinds of theoretical guarantees is extremely difficult. And, you know, neural networks, right? So uh, to me, the question is that... Uh, uh, so maybe I, I cannot contribute uh, or, or maybe there isn't a very deep theory of neural networks uh, that can prove useful to me. However, uh, ultimately, neural networks are still part of a bigger system. You know, we are thinking about building probabilistic models and, and uh, embedding them inside systems with logical semantics. So there is a lot about the overall system uh, that... Uh, I would like to reason about uh, in which uh, that I can actually understand uh, using the lens of theory. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that's to me the, the the reason theory is still relevant in this in this world. And even for uh, in, you know even in sort of machine learning, there are uh, people make simplifying assumptions, but under those assumptions, you get theorems that can then guide the design of algorithms. So I feel like. Uh, you know, if nothing else, theory uh, has a, a very important role in uh, guiding research and guiding the design of uh, of uh, algorithms and models. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, coming back to the beautiful theory that stuck with me, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that the uh, so I'm, I, I can speak more for theory B, uh, logic and and automata and and so on. I am. Um, uh, not by training and uh, qualified to speak about uh, algorithms and complexity. But in logic and automata theory, there is just so much that is beautiful. Uh, some of the work that I built on uh, in my grad school years, uh, those I, I remember the proofs. I, I think about the proofs now and then that, wow, this is, this is cool stuff. And this is one of the reasons, honestly, that I love being in a university that uh, I get to even if I don't work with those techniques all that much uh, on a day-to-day basis in my research, I get to teach about those techniques, right? And and I love that. Yeah, that's really cool. I was looking on your website and uh, you said that one of your goals is to have reliable, transparent, and secure systems. And if I think like loosely, then that's one goal of, of this model checking. Like you want, it ensures reliability in, in some sense. And you have a proof of something then it's transparent did did this kind of work lay some uh you know research paths that even continue till today uh, right right so let's maybe uh, disentangle the different questions here so one yeah. question is uh what role does this uh formal methods perspective uh, play in my you know dream of helping build uh, reliable and trustworthy um, artificial intelligence so um, to me, an AI system is just a kind of software system. 
right? So it happens to have uh, components that are learned from data, but fundamentally it is uh, an AI, a machine learning model is a, is a program. And so these um, questions that uh, folks in formal methods have studied for a long time, they are uh, relevant for uh, these kinds of uh, programs as well. Uh, because uh, we ultimately do want our programs to work. We don't just want them to, you know, uh, work on Tuesdays and fail on Thursdays, right? And and so how do you uh, ensure that? So, okay, the first step is um, having some notion of specification, that this is what I want my program to do. Uh, and um, and maybe certain, aspect of, uh, certain aspects of that are uncertain. So in particular... If I am, uh, say, building a recommendation system, maybe I do not uh, I, I do not care to formally specify what sort of movies it should output to um, recommend to to which customer specifically. But maybe I do have some high level constraints that uh, that certain kinds of recommendations are just not age appropriate uh, and and they should be forbidden, right? And this is. This is law. Uh, this is something that we should be able to specify. So then there is this challenge of uh, how do you build systems that respect these sorts of specifications? And I don't think that they are just using, you know, formal proofs is, is the way to go. But um, I, I think that that should play uh, a role in whatever method that we come up with. And mm-hmm. probably that will need to be augmented with more statistical techniques that uh, are are better at uh, reasoning about uh, uncertainty. Yeah, I see. And and so yeah, this was a pretty interesting view to think about the neural network as you know being a program. And then could you also view it as being kind of a sub routine within some program? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So to me, a neural network is a circuit. It's a low level program. And typically, when you're building an, an AI system, you are embedding that that uh, low-level program into a bigger uh, body of human-written code, and uh, and and there are laws that govern the behavior of the entire system, right? So, uh, for recommendation systems, maybe you can think of some properties like that. For but definitely for domains like self-driving cars and 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 uh, you know these days. Uh, Neural networks are also helping uh, control nuclear fusion, right? So, so nuclear fusion, you know, there are clearly some requirements that we need to satisfy. And uh, I think that the ideas uh, from formal methods, how to specify properties of complex systems, uh, they are extremely relevant. And even some of the specific uh, approaches to verifying these sorts of properties, uh, that is also really um, uh, relevant, I think. And that's one of the things we are trying to do, actually. Taking some of these ideas from model checking and theorem proving and abstract interpretation and all these uh, sub-areas of formal methods, um, bringing them to the domain of uh, learning-enabled systems. Yeah, I see. Um, Yeah, so I guess uh, we talked about how the kind of insights from formal methods correspond to things that you care about today. So maybe just a more... the more like historical branch of how your research started to shift to, uh, than to where it is today. Okay, yeah. So after I 
finished my uh, PhD, I was searching for directions. Uh, I did a few different things. I, you know, uh, looked into programming models for for concurrency, which was an, a hot topic in programming languages at that time. Um, I looked at uh, different kinds of verification problems. But then finally, uh, I encountered this, uh, this area of um, reasoning about uh, or analyzing uh, programs that operated on continuous data. Uh, so uh, we were, I, so I had this paper on uh, robustness and continuity analysis of programs. And uh, basically, the idea was to uh, show that, uh, come up with formal methods for showing that uh, a, a system, you know, let's say a controller uh, that operates on, on real-valued variables, that is, um, that is robust to perturbations in the environment. And robustness of neural networks was not yet a thing. But interestingly, there are connections between what I was working on at that time and this whole area of adversarial robustness in, in, uh, that, that arose in machine learning afterwards. So, so that uh, line of work was sort of the gateway drug. And then after that, uh, I got interested in this problem of uh, using continuous optimization techniques uh, in formal methods problems, uh, in particular for program synthesis. And you have to see that uh, most of the formal methods community likes to think about uh, discrete data types and uh, method. The techniques techniques that people use are also mostly based on uh, discrete mathematics. Mm -hmm. So this was a bit of a stretch for me at that time. But then... Uh, Around the same time, machine learning was becoming more and more important. And uh, then I started seeing these parallels. And I started talking to folks who did machine learning. But then uh, one of the big developments was that in, uh, the, in about 2011, 2012, uh, I started thinking about uh, the idea of using machine learning to solve program synthesis problems. And uh, again, this is something that uh, is now extremely mainstream, but at that time, no one really was talking about this. So I started a project uh, with a, a, another faculty member at Rice University, uh, where I worked at the time. <coughs> but then th this didn't go too far. Uh, but then there was this big DARPA program that was announced on this topic of learning from uh, corpora of code and, and using that to build a whole uh, family of, of formal methods, tools, program verification, program synthesis, and so on. Mm -hmm. And that program was really the accelerator. So all of a sudden, we had this big effort. And um, I was uh, working with many folks who were machine learning inclined. And then I was also picking up on machine learning. So it started with that. And then around 2016, I think, uh, I was visiting Microsoft Research, and then I had this great conversation with Pushmit Kohli on how many of these techniques are also uh, relevant to the, the core machine learning problems. And then I got interested in going in the other direction. So earlier, I was thinking of applying machine learning to programming problems, but now I started thinking about going in the other direction. Could PL and formal methods techniques be applicable in machine learning questions. Uh, and uh, 
then it got very exciting very quickly. I went on a mm-hmm. sabbatical in 2017, where I basically tried to be a machine learning grad student. I, you know, read entire textbooks. I this was in Switzerland, so I could uh, just cancel all my meetings, uh, giving the time difference as the excuse, and then all day I would just read. I would just read machine <laughs> learning and uh, solve problems and write code, and and it was fantastic. You know, being a grad student in a new field. And then by the time I came back, I was I think uh, in a pretty solid place. And by that time, I had established collaborations with several, you know, core machine learning folks. And these days, I would say most of the papers I write are uh, they go to machine learning conferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting what you said that like when you were starting with the program synthesis, it was kind of a smaller area. Uh, we also had Armando Solar Lozama from mm-hmm. MIT on. And he said the same thing that like when he was getting started with program synthesis, well, I forgot exactly what he said, but you know, more or less, it's like, because I'm interested in it and it was like the small area and we didn't really know that it was going to, you know, take off in the future. What did draw you to this area? Because I think sometimes now with like so much going on, someone might be drawn to an area because it is popular. I guess like for people listening, like, should we, uh, you know, decide research based on what is interesting or kind of like what we see as being the next uh, big thing? Or do you have any just like thoughts on that after looking back? Right. So I definitely say that you should do what is interesting, right? There are, um, if if machine learning isn't uh, what is exciting to you at this point, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, one should go into uh, machine learning. And the reason is that there are 10,000 other people who are getting into machine learning, if anything, you know, making new contributions uh, that is uh, that is harder uh, or, or uh, making contributions that stand out is harder because of this sort of uh, social dynamics. But I can say that for me, uh, the reason to get into machine learning was that uh, I saw data and uh, neural networks uh, as holding the key to a lot of problems that uh, I uh, always thought were very difficult. So in formal methods in particular, one big challenge was always this idea of a specification. You needed a, a human being to write this very detailed specification of the world. But this is something that is uh, difficult, as we discussed earlier in this chat. And the other uh, dimension was um, the search problem. Uh, so the space of programs, uh, let's say you're solving program synthesis, the space of programs that you'd have to explore for even a slightly complicated uh, domain-specific programming language, that is just massive. And uh, all of these traditional symbolic techniques, they would uh, just die after a after a certain level of complexity. And so to me, um, machine learning held keys to both of these questions. Um, Regarding the former, well, if you have ambiguous specifications, machine learning is, or more generally data-driven methods are really good at handling uh, ambiguity. And then regarding the search problem, uh, ideas such as uh, reinforcement learning and um, learning from you know, corpora of, of code, uh, these uh, uh, one can see as ways to simplify uh, that that search problem, 
right? Potentially, mm-hmm. you know, going from an exponential problem to a polynomial problem by uh, just uh, having a really good decision oracle at uh, uh, when you are writing programs or writing proofs and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, this was to me the this was the this these were the reasons why I thought uh, that learning based methods are an especially good fit for for core formal methods problems. Mm-hmm. But now regarding the other direction, uh, I, I've now come to believe that. Uh, that uh, ideas from PL and formal methods also have a very central ro- role to play in addressing many of the basic challenges that uh, that machine learning is facing. You know, questions mm-hmm. like uh, uh, transparency and and safety and uh, and uh, compositional generalization and and things like that. Uh, I think that the the compositional abstractions of PL and the symbolic reasoning techniques. I think these have a, an important role to play with a lot of these questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like the, the important thing is to have kind of difficult problems in mind. And then if you have a difficult problem in mind and something new comes along, like machine learning, like a set of techniques, and it kind of helps with your problem, then that could like direct your research in some new direction. That's right. Yeah. There's a, there's a few things that I'd really like to discuss about machine learning. Maybe just because you had mentioned the specifications we could talk a bit about uh, language models. So like we could think of these really large language models now um, as receiving some specification in their input. Uh, And then like we just had Charles Sutton on the podcast and he had this work which looked into just directly using the large language model for, you know, given some natural language specification, uh, synthesize the program. We also talked about like you could do something more structured like this uh, bottom-up enumerative search procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe just staying on the on the these like really large generic language models. From your perspective, what do you think of these? Like, have these changed the way you thought about program synthesis? Like, yeah, like what are your thoughts on these large language models for uh, the areas that you care about? So I love uh, large language models. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that they are um, a really powerful tool um, for uh, many difficult problems in computer science, including program synthesis. But I do not believe that they're the full picture. Um, ultimately, I want to have a program synthesizer, you know, write large parts of the software that we use on a day-to-day basis. But I also want to have some guarantees. I want to make sure that um, the software that my bank is running is not just uh, taking money from my account and putting it in uh, random other places. So how do I get those guarantees, right? So treating code as just purely unstructured uh, language to me is... uh, is a non-starter because of this reason. Now that said, uh, one could imagine embedding a language model inside a bigger uh, programming system where there are some checks and balances. And, and I think that how to create these kinds of language model augmented programming systems, uh, that is one of the big questions in the field uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. So just uh, to make it a little bit more concrete, 
people in uh, programmers have always been able to uh, you know handle untrustworthy components uh, and the way you do that is that you build in various sorts of redundancies you uh, do checks of inputs and outputs uh, you make sure that the outputs are uh, going to satisfy you know certain expectations so i think again that even if you're using a language model you could imagine you know embedding it inside a bigger framework where there are these sorts of checks and and, and such going and so mm-hmm. the overall system that you end up having in that case is not just a you know a, a, just a neural network but it's more like a neuro symbolic system where there are some some uh, assertions being made about end to end behavior and mm-hmm. i really think that that's how things are uh, going to progress but uh, that said i think that as a the capabilities that language models uh, offer uh, those are just uh, tremendous so all of a sudden you know these synthesis problems that took us uh, that we were just let's face it not even able to uh, solve uh, all of a sudden you know those have uh, come within our reach because of language models mm-hmm. yeah so do you keep like a like a um concrete scenario in mind to like get to next that is like unclear how to do with uh, the current methods yeah so i would say that uh, just as a as a uh, challenge imagine that you are trying to write a little file system you know how would you do that uh, so i don't think that or or, or take any any uh, non trivial piece of software like that so how would you do that using something like uh, codex i think that uh, at this point what you'll have to do is to uh, you know maybe uh, uh, give a carefully selected prompt and then you will get some output from codex but you'll have to update those outputs you'll have to check carefully and then you'll have to uh, ask codex to output some other parts of the code and and it's going to be this interactive process but there's going to be a lot of um, unpleasant parts of that where you have to you know go and manually check various sorts of corner cases and so on but i think mm-hmm. that uh, this is something that uh, that we could possibly mitigate using these sorts of automated uh, formal methods techniques so mm-hmm. one could imagine an interactive uh, computer aided programming process where you're using these uh, models like codex but you are also using you know automatic uh, checkers uh, to uh, for example find weird errors and uh, clarifying uh, asking for feedback from the from the programmer and so on so mm-hmm. again i think that all of this is within reach uh, there are techniques in formal methods that are mature enough that they can be put together with something like codex to to uh, uh, solve problems of this level of complexity and mm-hmm. uh, and how do you measure success maybe you know you say that the effort of development would be down by a factor of 10 or something so mm-hmm. i think something like that is not in the very distant future but uh, i think that it cannot be just end to end language models at least i haven't seen any evidence that you know these language models can produce code that is just perfect uh, if anything it, it seems like uh, beyond a certain level of complexity of the task you start seeing all sorts of weird errors like you know uh, abuse of types and and uh, uninitialized variables and you know uh, hallucinating 
uh, names of uh, fields in in classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really exciting because we're kind of moving to these more complex scenarios, and yeah, it seems like maybe a good way of thinking about it is that the language model kind of helps with this search problem mm-hmm. um, in the sense that it could like enumerate different candidates. Exactly. But like, we shouldn't expect that the one candidate that we get when we like sample from it is going to be what we want. And so That's we right. might need some additional layer on top of it, That's especially right. if you start like composing things together. And how to create a good feedback mechanism and uh, actually the feedback can go in both directions. You could imagine the language model guiding the the symbolic part of all this and then the symbolic uh, symbolic uh, components uh, giving feedback to the language model in the form of rewards or whatever else and uh, and you could imagine these sorts of rich neurosymbolic systems uh, but uh, i think we are not there yet mm-hmm. yeah so uh, talia ringer was on the podcast and we were talking about like the difference between the generalization or like the types of guarantees you get with uh you know software versus the types of kind of guarantees or the types of generalization we expect from a machine learning system Mm -hmm. and like i think a concrete example is um we actually looked into this this model that did symbolic integration Uh with a language model Mm -hmm. and it's really impressive it could do things like outside of what mathematica can do uh-huh. But then it turns out that like if you search around a given problem, it might not be fully robust. Like even if you change the numbers a little bit, mm-hmm. it might fail on like 16 cosine of x, but then work on like 17 cosine of x. Sure. And that differs from like if you have a, a program that has a certain type signature, then it should work for everything of the given type. That's right. So how do you think about these things? Like is the... Like, should we expect the machine learning system to eventually have stronger forms of generalization? Or, um, yeah, how do you think about this this difference? Well, we'd love for a machine learning system to have these stronger forms of generalization. Unfortunately, we don't know how to <laughs> how to uh, build such systems yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but barring any sort of fundamental new innovation in in um, machine learning, I think that um, one opportunity is to is to have the machine learning system reason over these sorts of um, um, symbolic objects and symbolic composition operations that uh, that are designed to uh, to do generalization. Um, so um, you know maybe the question is why do we need to work with concrete numbers 16 or 17 maybe, you know, we work with some abstractions of these numbers and um, uh, we learn over those those abstractions and maybe that learning process can also guide the creation of uh, of the um, of the abstraction process itself. And, and there could, again, be this feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have this review paper on neurosymbolic programs. And like we've already been in touching on these different areas, but uh, did you want to kind of just talk through that and like what were the motivations for for putting this review paper together and um yeah as a starting point we could start with that yeah absolutely so the areas of program synthesis and deep learning these are uh, coming closer and closer uh, over the last uh, five six years 
<coughs> and um, there was this uh, array of methods uh, uh, that uh, different people had come up with, you know, methods for doing program synthesis uh, uh, of classical programs, symbolic programs using neural techniques, uh, but also uh, methods for, you know, synthesizing these sorts of neurosymbolic programs uh, with applications in traditional programming problems, but also in uh, machine learning problems uh, across different domains. So mm -hmm. there was this uh, big zoo of uh, different kinds of approaches and uh, and uh, some of us thought that uh, we needed to sort of consolidate this under you know uh, an umbrella. And um, meanwhile, one other big thing that happened was that uh, we had this big National Science Foundation project uh, that started. This is an expedition. This is the, uh, the largest uh, project that you have within the CS division of the National Science Foundation. And this is specifically on neurosymbolic programming. Uh, and the mission is to bring together deep learning and, and program synthesis uh, even more closely in the context of natural science applications. And so uh, that uh, project had already uh, brought a lot of people together. And then some of us thought that, well, you know, we should uh, actually write a textbook on this topic. But well, you know, writing a proper textbook is a lot of work, but writing a survey was an, was a, uh, something smaller that we thought we could handle. Uh, but mm -hmm. concretely, the way this happened was uh, I wrote this blog post on the ACM plan blog. And then uh, one of the, uh, then I got this invitation from Rupak Majumdar, who is uh, the editor of this Foundation and Trends journal. And he said, uh, what do you think of writing up a survey? And we had already been talking about a survey. So this was just a, a great opportunity for us to uh, write this up. So yeah, like a after doing that, did it, um, like, I mean, one part of a survey is kind of organization. Did you like personally, have some new kind of like insight about where things like what are the most promising, uh, you know, areas to apply this or where are the weak points? Yeah. So honestly, one of the biggest challenges with that survey was defining <laughs> neurosymbolic programming. Mm. Uh, the idea of neurosymbolic learning, this has been around, of course, for a pretty long time since the late 1980s. Uh, but we had something more specific in mind, which was, uh, you know, connecting program synthesis in its modern form with uh, with uh, deep learning. And uh, while we were um, uh, sort of uh, demarcating that area and also categorizing the different kinds of approaches that are in that area, uh, we realized that there are, uh, you know, some big gaps that, uh, that needed to be filled. And we mentioned this a bit in the survey, but... Uh, uh, but there's also a lot that uh, is not in the survey. Uh, and honestly, things are also shifting every day. This field is very fast moving. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, so in the process, we identified some problems that that seemed really interesting, but where there are, uh, there is only a limited amount of work. And for example, you know, one uh, very interesting space is uh, lifelong learning and, and uh, library learning. So learning, you know, uh, reusable primitives uh, that can be put into a library and that can be used to you know create more complex compositions down the line so uh, the only uh, 
uh, strong work in this space uh, is Kevin and Armando's Dream Coder. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a great piece of work. I absolutely love it. But I think that that's a first step. There is a lot more that uh, that has to uh, one has to uh, do. Um, and then there are also uh, these questions of how do you bridge um, the gap between perception and symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also a, a big open question. You know, how do, how do the symbols emerge in the first place uh, from perceptual data? And then there is the question of... Um, uh, so we had talked about causality a little bit, uh, but I think that that is a very interesting space that remains basically unexplored. You know, the intersection of causal reasoning and neurosymbolic uh, models. Uh, so uh, that's one of the things, actually, that uh, some of us are are looking very closely into. But uh, uh, basically, nothing has been done over there. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. We had Kel- Kevin Ellis on the on the podcast to talk through his dream cutter work. It's it, it is really cool. Yeah. So I guess the idea is like you. Um, I mean, not about that work specifically, but you said this is kind of an open area. So the idea is like you want the system to you know, similar to a large code base or a large, similar to like the programming environment that we're in, people develop different modules that are then reused by others. And so we want our systems to be able to do that. Yeah. And the modules really represent abstraction, right? So the fundamental Mm -hmm. question is how do you do abstraction and uh, learning um, at the same time? Mm -hmm. Right, and the abstraction gives you the ability to uh, create uh, really rich forms of composition. But uh, how do, how do you come up with those abstractions? So one possibility is that you just uh, predefine a set of modules and then you work with that. But uh, ideally, you know, even this abstraction process should be uh, driven by experience. Uh, and and so how to do that? We don't really. Um, Beyond Kevin's work and a couple of other efforts, uh, we don't really know that much about uh, that problem. Uh-huh. Cool. And so then you you mentioned like causality, and I saw some of your other uh, papers. I, we'd have to book another hour, unfortunately. To uh, <laughs> uh, you have you have a lot of really interesting, like uh, really recent work. Um, but you know, some of it is on this idea of program synthesis, and um, some of it was on. Uh, reinforcement learning even Mm -hmm. so just like in general like maybe for someone who's listening and is curious about your your lab um what's the kind of you know outline of what you're interested in right now right so um one way to do this is by technique um uh, and another is to go by the application theme so maybe i'll go with the application theme that's uh maybe a little bit more easy easy to uh describe so um, I have three themes uh, in my lab right now. Uh, one of them is about uh, just programming and mathematical reasoning. Uh, so building you know, um, better programming assistants uh, or you know, uh, translation algorithms uh, that go from one language to another and uh, repair, uh, program repair algorithms and so on. Mm-hmm. And mathematical reasoning or the discovery of proofs uh, automatically, that is also very related to this. So then the second theme is um, just generally scientific discovery. Um, and uh, that includes healthcare as well. 
So we have this great collaboration with uh, some folks from Caltech on um, who are in uh, behavioral neuroscience. And so uh, we want to you know, come up with better behavioral models of uh, these lab animals like mice and fruit flies and so on um, using these program synthesis techniques. Uh, one motivation here is uh, interpretability because ultimately the scientists are trying to understand the world and uh, programs are, one hopes, more interpretable than, well, I, I don't think it's one hopes. Programs are more interpretable than, uh, than uh, raw neural networks. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that programs are especially interpretable even compared to many of the other models that folks have considered in interpretable AI uh, mm. because pro people routinely understand really complex pieces of code. And this is possible because of the high-level abstractions that are commonly used. Uh, so programs are modular. They use uh, you know rich uh, control primitives. And uh, these things permit expressiveness without necessarily compromising interpretability. So this is one sort of general uh, motivation, interpretability, but then also, you know, um, for the science setting, often you don't have very large amounts of data for certain kinds of behavior. So doing data efficient learning is especially important and programs are, programming languages are a good way of specifying our priors. So if you have certain kinds of, uh, you know, behavioral uh, patterns that you, uh, see uh, pretty widely in your domain, then you could imagine um, just having a library function that defines that and then uh, writing programs over uh, that library function. <coughs> so that's the second theme. And the third theme is um, generally um, control and uh, cyber physical systems. So um, I have collaborations with some uh, roboticists um, here at UT, and um, and we are looking at basically these sorts of uh, long horizon autonomy problems, uh, where um, a lot of the times neural nets don't do so well. So the question mm -hmm. is, how do you how do you allow the agent to do complex procedural tasks? Um, and the advantage of a programming language perspective is that again you have these um, these ways of doing constructing very rich compositions, uh, just using the structure of the programming language. And this can guide the exploration process. Uh, this can also help with interpretability, um, uh, which is an important question, especially if you're looking at you know expensive robots operating in the presence of humans. Um, it can also help with you know safety verification and uh, and uh, designing safe by construction agents and and so on. So these are the three general themes, and and the cross-cutting questions are interpretability, safety, solving rich procedural tasks, um, data efficiency. Mm -hmm. Cool, yeah, and yeah, as I mentioned, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, actually, fortunately, uh, you you have these areas nicely outlined on your uh, website too, so uh, listeners can check out your papers in those areas. But uh, yeah, un unfortunately, we are uh, limited on on time. So um, I ask two questions at the end of every thesis review. And uh, so we can move to those. Sure. So the first is about um, objective functions. So if you could look back to when you're a PhD student and think about like 
whether you could summarize what you were doing as being guided by some objective function, uh, be it you know scientific curiosity, aiming at some particular job, something like that. Uh, what was your objective function during the PhD? And then uh, would you say that uh, it's changed? And like, do you have a different objective function now? Yeah. Um, I would say that when I was a PhD student, my objective function was uh, not especially, um, you know, um, pragmatic. It was really just driven by what I thought was was cool, you know, what was fun. Um, and to me, fun at that time was was that I wanted to prove, you know, certain kinds of theorems, you know, I wanted to get results and, uh, and, uh, and then also, you know, uh, presenting those results to other people in the community and so on. But as I have uh, grown older, or, you know, grown up, I guess, <laughs> I have uh, come to appreciate the value of practical impact, you know, ultimately, I am, you uh, you know, I'm. I hope that the work that I do is is going to uh, influence, have a positive outcome uh, on the world. And I think that uh, you know that sort of real world impact uh, is is a lot more important to me now. And so that's why mm-hmm. I uh, like to take on these problems that are that I consider you know difficult technically, but also important for for humanity. You know, I want. AI systems to be safe. I believe in the power of AI systems, but I, I want them to be safe and trustworthy. I want them to be accountable to, to stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, you know, want to, you know, I have seen the power of machine learning in scientific discovery. I think that's, you know, to me, that's, a, that, that's really amazing to be living in these times where you can have computer science contribute so much to uh, say the discovery of vaccines or you know uncovering new truths about the universe but i also feel like you know uh, i have something to contribute to that uh, those challenges uh, mm-hmm. so to me you know the the importance of the problem uh, the the real world importance of the problem that's a very very important criterion now but that said i also want to do technically interesting things and mm-hmm. uh, and so ideally i look for problems that that achieve both Right. Yeah. So then the last question is sometimes the most difficult one. So if you um, had to give one piece of advice to a new researcher uh, who's just getting started in the field, um, what would it be? And to make it easier, like it could even just be like a useful heuristic or it could be some grand piece of advice. Uh, And some people do give both, but uh, one piece of advice to a new researcher. Right. So I'm having some difficulty just identifying one, but okay. Mm-hmm. So I would say that um, that uh, uh, one of the things that uh, Ed Clark, who was the inventor of model checking, and he uh, actually won the Turing Award for uh, doing that, uh, he once told me was that you know, after you finish your PhD, uh, don't immediately settle for a problem. Go and uh, explore for a while and um, 
and talk to a lot of people, uh, try to you know find out what's important. But then once you pick a problem, then um, you know stick to it for a for a, a at least a while and ideally you know for a very long time. Mm. And I think that there is a lot of value to this. Um, although I can't say that. So in my life, uh, I have moved around quite a lot, and so you know maybe I was in that exploratory phase for a for a really long period of time. But uh, I, I do feel that there is this need to you know eventually hunker down and focus on and and uh, a challenge for a, a long period of time because uh, that's how you need to put in those hours to really, really uh, develop a deep enough understanding that you can, um, you can make, do something really significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, there are uh, social pressures against sticking to a problem and, and really uh, pushing on it. But uh, I feel that uh, there is a lot of value in res- trying to resist those, those social pressures. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty amazed. So I think we're at episode 43, but almost every piece of advice is is unique and, and that is a new one and very valuable to do exploration, but then also, uh, you know, at some point focus in and keep going on, you know, a difficult, interesting problem. Okay, well, um, yeah, so thanks so much for taking the time to come on the thesis review. Uh, this has been a great conversation and it's been really interesting going back to your thesis and then uh, moving to the present day and talking about how, uh, you know, what has changed, but then also what has kind of stayed the same. So um, right. thanks so much for taking the time to come on the thesis for you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.